challenges from infancy to adolescence and adulthood through to death, whole older age, life is about overcoming. It's about finding love and losing love and regaining love uh, from friendships. There are things to overcome, finances to considering our future. A lot of people ask the question, why is there suffering in the world? But it's the wrong question. The question isn't, why is there suffering in the world? The question is, why are people happy in light of all the suffering in the world at all? There's so much to overcome, so many challenges, so much pain and heartache and misery and grief all over the world. The question is, how do people get out of bed at all and make something of their lives and enjoy themselves? That's the question that we should be wrestling with. Uh, the, the number of years ago, the Humanist Society took out an ad around an ad campaign on the buses in London. And on the side of the buses, it said, there probably isn't a God, so stop worrying and enjoy your life. These buses paraded themselves around London. But it's a strange campaign. It's wrong on many levels. There probably is no meaning and purpose and point to anything that you do. Therefore, enjoy yourself and stop worrying about it, which is only something you're capable of doing if, I don't know, if you're very strong indeed. But then the final part of that statement, stop worrying and enjoy your life, as though life is primarily a product to be enjoyed, or a sofa to be sat on, or a meal to be eaten. Enjoy your life. It's an incredibly narrow statement and a narrow view of life that would say life is primarily for the enjoyment. No, it's not. For 99% of the population on the planet, life is mostly about survival and overcoming and challenges. It's not about enjoying ourselves. Enjoy your life in this world where children get cancer and mosquitoes have malaria and corrupt political regimes commit mass genocide on their populations. Enjoy your life, or perhaps just closer to home. Enjoy your life where there's plenty of family dysfunction and children growing up without fathers and boilers that break in the middle of winter and redundancy letters being served and MOTs that require us to find money to fix our cars and monotonous jobs that give us no satisfaction and no fulfillment in life and loneliness is rife. Enjoy your life. Jesus said, take heart because I have overcome the world. And it's that that we're going to be looking at today together in John's Gospel, chapter 16. We're finishing our teaching series where we've been talking about Jesus, the centerpiece, the centerpiece of Christianity, the centerpiece of the world. There is none like Jesus, no one like Jesus. And every week for the past however many weeks, we've been making that statement time and time again. The purpose of life is to behold Jesus, to get to know Jesus to realize that everything else clouds our view from him, and he's the one who's able to lead us through life. Jesus has overcome the world, and I want to show why that's good news and how that's good news for those of us who live in the world with its trials and challenges that need to be overcome on a daily basis. When faced with challenges, most of us find reassurance from the people that we're living around. Uh, and the more someone is like us, the more reassuring it is. So I could tell an expectant mother, 
don't worry, labor's going to be fine. I've seen it, my, my wife's been through it, and you'll be fine. Just hang on in there. It might hurt for a little bit, but you'll recover. People do. I could bring some level of reassurance to a woman. But that wouldn't mean anywhere near as much as if my wife was to say, it's okay, (laughs) you'll get through it, don't worry. Now my role might be to encourage the father or the father to be, don't worry, you will make it through labour. Your hand will hurt for a little bit, but afterwards I promise you'll feel a little bit better. She might pull on your hair and shout at you and swear at you, not that that happened, but you will recover. Don't worry. The more like us someone is, the more their reassurance means to us. That's part of why church is so beautiful and why what we're doing is so significant because it's a com- church is a community made up of people at all ages and at all different life stages. Because the kids, who they really want to learn from are the teens and they want to be around teenagers that are going to show them it's okay, I've overcome the childhood bit and now I'm here. And the teens, they really want to be around people who are older teens or early 20s to show it's okay, you can overcome, I've been there. Just as people who are approaching marriage want to be around newlyweds and learn from them or around people who are mature as singles and see what does it look like to live for Jesus in your stage of life. That's why people with young families often want to hang out with people whose kids are older than theirs to learn. People who've just retired, people who are approaching retirement want to be around people who've just retired say what does it look like to live for Jesus? How do I overcome this mountain or obstacle that's coming to me? Well the one person who has been tempted and suffered in every way as we are tempted and suffer and yet overcame is Jesus and he's the one that we get to listen to this morning and hear from as we see how his victory over the world makes difference makes a difference to our lives so John chapter 16 I'm going to read verses 28 through to 33 Jesus has been speaking about his departure about the coming of the Holy Spirit to help and about the privilege of prayer that we as Christians can go to the Father. And then Jesus says this, I came from the Father and have come into the world and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. And his disciples said, ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using picture language or figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the time is coming, indeed has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father's with me. I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world." The Christian life is a battle and Christians have enemies or much to overcome, enemies that come against them. Arguably, it's harder to to live as a Christian than not as a Christian from the point of view that we have enemies. A friend of mine who's um, who's quite a militant atheist a few years ago said to me, or accused me of escapism and said, listen, you Christians just, you can't handle reality with its godlessness, and so you've invented some fairy in the sky to talk to and give you comfort. And I said, is that true? Is that, is that what it means to be a Christian? Is just to 
engage in an activity of mass delusion for the sake of comfort? Well, there's a lot easier paths to choose than the Christian path if you want comfort in life. And so I said to my friend, I don't, I don't think I believe that. I live in a society where every day the messages from the intellectual elite or the secular society around me, every day people are telling me, abandon your Christian ideas. I live in a body with, a, 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 with a, an animalistic desires that tell me, don't trust Jesus, just do what you want to do. And every day as a Christian, we die to ourselves in order to choose him and his life for us. See, I don't think that it's easier to live as a Christian than not. For the reason that we have enemies, we have the world. The Bible describes the three enemies of the Christian: the world, the flesh, and the devil. We talked last week about the devil and saw how Jesus came to conquer the devil, the one that Adam couldn't beat in the garden. Jesus eventually took on and defeated for us. As Christians, we also have the enemy of the flesh. That's the part of us that we've inherited from Adam that doesn't want to submit to or please God. And daily as Christians, we battle against the flesh. But we also have the enemy of the world. And that's what Jesus talks about today in the passage we read. The word world, or the, the idea of the world, it comes up a lot in the Bible. And in John's Gospel alone, it's used to mean a variety of different things. On the one hand, the world simply refers to the physical world around us. So in John chapter 1, says that he was in the world and the world was made through him. That's you know, the created world around us. And then in John 3.16, we see another use of the word world referring to the human world, the people around us. For God so loved the world, not referring to the, the trees and seas and bees and the puffins and the muffins, he's referring to the people. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son in order that whoever believes in him should not die but live forever. And in John chapter 1, Jesus approaches his baptism and his cousin, John the baptizer, looks at him and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, referring to the people. So the word world means the physical world, the human world, but more often than not, when Christians talk about the world, they're referring to the moral world. It refers to the world that is indifferent or hostile to God, the world of corruption and evil. Of the moral world, the Bible has a lot to say. In James 4, verse 4, it says, Friendship with the world means being an enemy of God. In John's Gospel, he says that the whole world, referring to the moral world, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The devil is often called the, the ruler of this world, or the Apostle Paul calls him the God of this age. The world, the moral world, is captive to the enemy with its institutions and ideas that are against God. But for the Christian, for the believer, John writes to his churches in 1 John, and he says, anyone who is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that's overcome the world, our faith. So it is our faith in Jesus that enables us and means that we overcome the world. But let's get into the Bible passage and see what we can learn about Jesus and the world and our relationship with him and him with us. When chapter 16, verse 28, Jesus said, I came from the Father and have come into the world... And now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. 
Jesus left his father's presence, his father's house, a place of life and joy and peace everlasting. He left that. He says, I came from the father and I came here. It's like going outdoors on a winter's day. I left the warmth of my home to enter the blizzard. Or it's like going somewhere really bleak and oppressive and horrible for holiday, like Dungeness in Kent. If you've ever been, oh, I've seen much of the world, and that is darkest of all. Dungeness. So Jesus left the place of joy and went to Dungeness. He came here into the world, a place of death and decay and disease. Jesus knew what it was like to live in a world of corruption and difficulty and pain and suffering. Jesus, fully man as he was, knew what it was like to be laid up with sickness, to have his hopes deferred, to see loved ones die. And when he came into the world, he didn't come wearing a, a, a chemical protective suit. You know, like you see in some of the films or when there's an outbreak of a disease. He didn't come wearing that. I mean, can you imagine if he did? If God came in a suit of armor and basically just said to us, Oh, hello. I'm here for you. I love you. Take my hand. Your father loves you. He didn't come as Darth Vader. He came into our skin. He wasn't afraid of contamination. Like some people, some people are afraid of contamination. They try to remove themselves from the world. I don't want to talk to them because they're depressing. I don't want to visit them because they're going through pain and difficulty and it would rub off on me or make me feel. Un- Jesus wasn't a Buddhist. He didn't retreat and think, if I can just absorb myself into the universe and not worry or change my perspective on the world so that the pain doesn't affect me, it just bounces off me and I can just go through life. He didn't live like that. He didn't live like many, dare I say, Christians live. Who behave like the world is out to contaminate us and we need to head for Christian communes around the planet. We must not go to the places of darkness where there's people who swear or do naughty things. We must must hide away. Jesus didn't live like that. He said, I came into the world. He entered human existence. And then in light of him saying this, his disciples are like, wow, now I understand you've come from God. It's quite a strange statement, isn't it? They say, ah, now you're speaking plainly. And then Jesus says, oh, do you believe now? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home. And you will leave me alone. And then he says, but I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you may have trouble. So Jesus came into the world Secondly, Jesus promises, he promises it to us. He promises trouble in the world, which isn't the best sales pitch. If you're starting a new religion or a new movement, that's not the way you go. I'm off, Jesus says to his followers, and you're going to have a lot of trouble. By the way, here's my idea for world like domination and conquest and I want you to take this message of peace and love and hope and reconciliation with God. I want you to take it to the ends of the earth. I'm off. <laughs> like, what? 
You can imagine his disciples saying, no, 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 can we talk about this? I've got a better idea. Jesus, sit down, have a cup of tea. Um, let's be British and let's work out there must be another way. Why don't you, I've got a better idea. How about you stay? What a great idea. Yes, it is a great idea, isn't it, Jesus? You're going to stay. I've got a website. We've already got the domain name saved. I'm going to run the PR. Peter over there, he's responsible for uh, making tea. We can't put him in charge of much else. But Jesus, honestly, if you just stuck around, this would go a lot better. We've got a plan. That's what I would have done. Actually, Jesus says, no, I'm off. And when people tried to deter him from his plan, he, he called them the devil, which shows how strongly he felt about it. When Peter said to him, oh, we've got a better idea. You're not going to die. And he said, get behind me, Satan, to Peter. Because Jesus promises trouble. They think that they finally mastered it. They think, oh, now we believe. We understand at last. What a great idea. You're God himself. You've come to rescue us. Now we believe. But Jesus knows that they're not going to last. It's not that they're fickle. It's that they're infantile in their belief. They're immature as believers. My, my son, Riley, I keep saying to him recently, you need to mature. You need to grow up a bit, son. And he says, I'm not cheese, Dad. What do you mean mature? So that's whatever comes to my mind now. But he knows that they're not mature cheese. They're immature, they're fickle, they're infant-like. He knows that at the first sign of trouble, they're going to be scattered to the hills. Whereas they think they're strong. They think they're capable. We know who you are now. They've passed their driving test. They think they can drive. And Jesus is like, no, you've got a certificate. You can't drive. You need to, or you're going to be scattered. I mean, they're not nowhere as Christians. They have grasped who Jesus is. It's just that they're still very influenced by the world. They've presumed of themselves a level of stability and strength in their faith that Jesus doesn't presume of them. We have to be careful of feeling wise or grown up, feeling mature in our own eyes. We've got to be careful. Because one of the things that maturity can do is when you think you're a grown-up when it comes to things of the faith, you then can isolate yourself because you think, I'm not needy anymore. I can handle this. Jesus knows that his disciples, they're going to be scattered because they're young and their faith is weak and they're immature. And the enemies of the Christian life are fierce. The serpent is crafty. You're weak against the battles of the flesh. You're an easy target. You try to live the Christian life on your own, you won't last very long. Well, you might still be a Christian by name. You might still tick the Christian box on the census because you, you, know, you want to be faithful. But it's very easy for Christians, believers, to be neutralized and ineffective because they've removed themselves and think, oh, I've got it together now. I'm mature. I'm strong. I can do this. And actually, when the challenge comes for the disciples of whether they're going to stand or scarper, they scarpered. We are not the ones who can overcome the world on our own. We are men and women of our time. We are people of history. We will be judged harshly by our grandparents' generation or our great oh, sorry, our grandchildren's generation or our great grandchildren. They will look back on us and say, I can't believe they did that. 
I can't believe how weak they were. I can't believe how this they were or how that they were. I mean, people already think like that, don't they, across the generations. Look back at your great-grandparents' generation and think, I can't believe that they believed that. Or the grandparents look at their grandchildren and think, well, who am I leaving the world to? They can't be relied upon to do up their own shoelaces or blow their own noses, and yet they're in charge now. We have to be careful. We have to be humble. Some of us need to be knocked down a bit and say, you're not as strong as you think you are. You need to ask more questions. You need to be weaker. You need to ask for prayer more often. You can't do this alone. Others of us, however, need encouraging, need to be told he knows what you're like and he still loves you. He knows you're fickle and weak in faith and he still chooses you. Take heart, Jesus says. Or another translation puts it, never lose heart. Or the good old King James says, be of good cheer, Jesus says. Be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. What he's doing in promising trouble for them is he's preparing them for what's to come. To be forewarned is to be forearmed, is to be prepared. I mean, we all know the clocks are going to change twice a year, don't we? How do we prepare for it? Some of us, we prepare when our alarm wakes us up in the morning. We go, oh, the clocks have changed. Others of us re- like prepare a week in advance. Oh, I'm, I'm going to live in the good of next week. It's not 11 o'clock, it's 10 o'clock. And I'm going to behave like it's 10 o'clock to psychologically prepare myself. When Jesus says trouble's coming, what he's saying, what he, wants, what he expects from his followers is to prepare yourself and expect it. Don't be surprised when things are difficult. But finally, let's look at this. How has Jesus overcome the world? I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble, but take heart, be of good courage, be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. What's interesting is that Jesus is about to die. and Before he dies, he says, I've won. A few hours later, a few days later, you might think, Wait, did you call that a little bit soon? <laughs> did you count your chickens before they hatched? We all know those people who love to boast while their team's 2-0 up at half-time, only for them to lose afterwards. Um, my, my, my friend has a son who's, um, who's seven, and he's a Crystal Palace fan. And a few weeks ago, Crystal Palace, they lost 3-2 to Man United, didn't they? Um, but my friend showed him the match uh, on replay. And my, friend's se- my friend's son's seven, Crystal Palace are 2-0 up and he's refusing, the seven-year-old is refusing to enjoy the moment because he says to his dad, it won't last, dad. They lose 3-2. I'm not going to enjoy, the, I'm not gonna enjoy this. You think, wow, such maturity, such wisdom. Just enjoy the moment, kid. <laughs> You're a child. No one likes to be caught with egg on their face at the end. Is that what happened to Jesus? I've overcome the world. How can he say that? He says that he's conquered right before his death. Well, how did Jesus overcome the world? His 10, quick. He, firstly, he overcame the world by sticking to his father's plan and submitting to the Spirit's leading. You think for the first 30 years of his life, what was he doing? He was being the son of a mother and a father. He was being a carpenter. He was being a brother. He wasn't healing anyone. He wasn't telling anyone the news of the kingdom. He wasn't correcting anyone's error. He could have done for 30 years he waited, he submitted, he held back. 
It would have been very easy for him. I mean, Joseph, Mary's husband, died, tradition tells us, in Jesus' childhood. He's certainly not around when Jesus is an adult. It would have been very easy for Jesus to heal Joseph. Very easy for Jesus to look at the pain of the world and say, someone needs to do something about this. I will. Where's God? Why do I have to wait for so long? Could have become a doctor. Could have set himself up as a political leader. And it's not that Jesus was unfeeling about those things. You see, when Jesus overturns the, temple, the tables in the temple, you see his passion for the things of God. He's furious at how people are behaving in the temple and how they're not using it for what it's supposed to be used for. So he's furious. But Jesus knows when God wants us to be quiet, we do his will by remaining quiet. He overcame the world by constantly sticking to his father's plan. Secondly, he overcame the world by always speaking the truth. He was the eternal word, the logos, the, the truthful speech. He was the eternal speech, the eternal truthful speech, and he always stuck to truth. He was able to bring order into situations. There was never any deceit in him, never any half-truths. He remained unintimidated by the people around him. He never changed his message once. He wasn't a man of his time. You know, we're increasingly here of historical figures who are having their... Um, what do you call them? Statues ripped down because modern people are judging them harshly. So can you believe there's this statue of this man in Trafalgar Square? Let's rip it down because he was an awful man. He had these horrible ideas. He believed this. He believed that. We judge people harshly. Jesus has never said anything that has been proven to be, oh, he just said that because he was a man of his time. He didn't just take the latest Greek idea or the latest Roman idea and say, oh, let me tell you this clever wisdom that years later people have gone, ah, what did he know? He was a first century Jew. Everything Jesus has ever said has been truthful rather than just cultural or just conditioned for his time. He overcame the world by not being seduced by the people's praises. When the crowds came to make him a king by force, he resisted. When the devil offered him the kingdoms of the world, he resisted. He didn't have his head turned by having people say nice things about him. He also overcame the world by not being distracted when people frowned or disapproved of him. He wasn't taken off task by praise or by lacking in popularity. Fifthly, Jesus overcame the world by not abusing his power. He could have conquered with might. He could have liberated the world. How much more could the Son of God have conquered than Alexander the Great or the, the conquerors and heroes of his time or the Caesars? He could have said, right, I'm sorting this mess out. Let's go. Let's rally some troops. Let's fix this. But he never once used his power badly. They say power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Well, here was a man who knew his father, who could, who could give sight to the blind, something that only God can do, and yet he resisted the world's way of abusing its power. He overcame the world by being unafraid of or unimpressed by people with titles. Celebrities didn't change his opinion. People in government and power didn't cow him into submission. He could stand before a ruler 
and sit quietly with a peasant and bring the same truth. He wasn't a man impressed by titles. He's not impressed by you or me because of what we've achieved. And equally, he's not depressed by you and me because of what we haven't achieved. He overcame the world as well by remaining, seventhly, by remaining constant in his love. He loved those who hated him. He didn't just say, love your enemies. He practiced it. He loved the unlovely. He went to those that the world couldn't stand. And what's fascinating with Jesus is that the world didn't beat this love out of him. He didn't ever become just cynical and bitter by the need around him. Charles Spurgeon says of Nero, he says, We have seen fine men and women full of generosity who have had to deal with a crooked and perverse generation until they have at last grown hard and cold. Emperor Nero, who weeps when he signs the first death warrant of a criminal, at last comes to gloat in the blood of his subjects. Jesus overcame the world by remaining constant in his love. Number eight, he overcame by his unselfishness. The basis of the world's economies is essentially that every nation, every man, every family, every community should and must take care of itself first. It's reckless and irresponsible to be unselfish. Give away, yes, but make sure you've got enough to look after yourself. Jesus rejected that gospel of selfishness and overcame it to the point that he was even willing to give his life away for others. Such was Jesus' unselfishness. Number nine, he overcame the world by his death. And in his death, Jesus also lifted humanity out of its trap to the world. He taught humanity that they are now redeemed and can be set free from the powers of this world, from the corruption of the flesh and from the power of the enemy. You can be set free because, not because you can try hard, but because in Jesus' death, he's redeemed those who were enslaved. You have been bought with a price the Bible says, you're no longer your own. He's freed you from bondage. And he overcame the world by rising and reigning. Death, the world's greatest weapon and fear of death. A thing that causes people to make all kinds of foolish decisions and remain cowards our entire lives. Jesus defeated it. And now reigns over the top of it until death is going to just be another footstool for Jesus' feet. What that means is that hope has been unleashed on the world instead of death. Death still widespread, still torturous, still horrible. But hope is now possible because Jesus has overcome the world. Jesus overcame in those 10 ways. He overcame by sticking to his father's plan, by always speaking the truth. He overcame by not being seduced by praise or distracted by disapproval. He didn't abuse his power. He wasn't afraid of power or impressed by titles. He remained constant in his love. He overcame by unselfishness. He overcame by his death and he overcame by his rising and reigning. And why this matters and what this means for us. Why we spend time talking about Jesus is because... You become like what you behold. You become like what you behold, what you devote yourself to. So you devote yourself to alcohol 
And you become like what alcohol gives you, chaos and broken relationships. You devote yourself to your family and you'll be crushed under the weight of your family's disapproval or if your kids don't make the grade. You become like what you behold. You, people say owners look like their pets, don't they? <laughs> you look like your dog after a while. You spend all your time. I mean, this reveals more about my uh, selfishness than anything else, but I'll say this anyway. I just don't understand dog owners. Like, I love dogs. Dogs are nice. And I'm basically going to lose the room with this. That's okay. You'll forget everything else I've said. But human beings picking, like, spending their lives picking up poo from another animal that's not even theirs. And now I know it displays a remarkable level of compassion and godlike grace and kindness. But I just, I guess I'm too selfish. But I don't want to devote myself to something that basically means I have to pick up poo. Because that's what devoting myself to this animal involves. Picking up poo and inconveniencing myself often. You become like what you behold is the point. And so by focusing on and seeing Jesus and saying, that's the one that we're going to behold, we're going to worship him, we're going to celebrate him. A few weeks ago, I was in a worship meeting and we were singing songs to Jesus and the thought went through my mind, we sing songs a lot. What's the point of all this worship? What's the point? I'm a pastor and I think those thoughts, forgive me. What's the point in all this singing and all this like celebrating of Jesus? And the thought came to me, worship is an end in itself. It is the end in itself. It's what we're made for. Whether it's singing or not, devoting yourself to him. Because as you behold him, over time you become like him. He overcame the world, and as I see him and put my faith in him, John says our faith also means that we overcome the world. We experience trouble. That's life's guarantee. Death and taxes. In this life, we'll know grief and sickness and heartbreak, frustration and disappointment. In the Christian life, you'll know opposition. You'll know the world's coming against you and trying to stop you from living for Christ and worshipping him and stopping you being devoted to him. You'll have all the reason of the world throwing itself out. You don't give your money away to Jesus. Keep it for yourself. Don't trust that. Don't give yourself to the church. Every man or woman's an island. Build your castle. Make your family the object of your devotion. Jesus says, who are my mothers and brothers and sisters and whatever? It's those who do the will of God. Devote yourself here. You've got the opposition of the world and its wisdom. You've got the opposition of the flesh and the devil. But Jesus says, have peace. You will have peace. How do we have peace? Our peace in life doesn't come by averting our eyes from the pain. It doesn't come by distracting ourselves to death and just pushing it to the back of our mind. Time isn't the healer. Jesus is. Our peace doesn't come by averting our gaze. Our, our peace comes by fixing our eyes on what's ultimately true. You stare at life situations. The doctors don't know what to do. There's nothing left that they can say. The school have given up on your child. There's no career progression available for you. Zip. You stare at that. Where does peace come from? We've got this mountain of debt, this mortgage to be paid, these mouths to feed, 
And on top of all that, you've got this restless heart that just longs for purpose and meaning. <laughs> but stop worrying and enjoy your life. There's no God. That doesn't help. Peace doesn't come by ignoring it. Peace comes by looking at Jesus, the one who overcame, the one who says, you can have my peace. I've said these things to you in order that you'll have peace. Because since Jesus has overcome, we will too. Paul says we are more than conquerors. What's, a, what's more than a conqueror? Someone who's reigning and ruling and who sees beyond just the temporal victories. Someone who sees the Christ, the Son of God, the one who for thousands of years has spoken over the world his gospel. And kings and kingdoms come along and say, he's nonsense. This carpenter's son, this Galilean peasant. And yet, he turned the world upside down. And he continues to turn the world upside down because he's overcome the world. We're going to respond together by breaking bread and remembering Jesus' death on the cross and the implications of that death for our lives. And giving thanks to Jesus as the one who's overcome the world by praying for one another and by asking him to give us his peace. Let's pray together.